everybody, and welcome to a special edition of Positive Regression, coming to you recorded after uh, the finale at Daytona, the NASCAR Cup Series regular season finale in Daytona on a Saturday night, a good night of racing. We're here to discuss it. I'm Alan Kavanaugh, of course, joined as always by David Smith. And David, it's a proper opportune time to record a special edition because the playoff field is set and it came down to the last lap and overtime restart with, I got to say, a lot of players uh, available, if you will, eligible, still there at the end, a lot of potential for a win-in-in scenario. In the end, though, it was, what, experience, it was speed, it was talent that won out because it was Ryan Blaney taking the victory. Your initial thoughts of another regular season finale at Daytona. I was impressed with Ryan Blaney. I, I really was. I mean. We talked a little bit off mic that it looked as if uh, he, he was Joey Logano's deputy, and, and once <laughs> Logano cut a tire, he he stepped into the role of sheriff and kind of did a lot of the same things. But it's it's been interesting to watch Blaney's maturation as a drafter because when he came into the Cup Series, his drafting style was uh, clear, and that he was highly instinctive, but his blocking was a lot of sharp diagonals. And tonight, especially on that final restart, it was a lot of rounded edges, uh, getting out into clean air and then able to pretty much block any line from there. He really controlled the race well uh, towards the end. And Brian Blaney on a restart, that's been his forte since pretty much day one, since he came into the Cup Series. Uh, Not... Uh, as much of a shock as you'd think uh, coming into any kind of drafting track race nowadays. Heading into this week on our regular episode of Positive Regression, we talked about how do you win Daytona? What factors in? A lot of it came down to speed. Yes, raw speed on a drafting track. How did that line up tonight? How was Ryan Blaney's speed compared to how he finished? Unofficially, the fifth fastest Median lap time for Ryan Blaney, uh, not far off of Joey Logano, who had the second fastest median lap time. Uh, Logano, uh, I will seed was the class of the field, uh, but Blaney was was right there. And and all race uh, seemingly early in the race when William Byron was towards the front, he was clicking off uh, fast lap times towards the middle of the race when Denny Hamlin was working his way up fast lap times and. Speed came to the surface. Corey LaJoy ranked third in the median lab category unofficially, but it showed. I mean, certainly his strongest all-around race as a drafter, his result will not show that, but it was a performance in which I'm, I would have to assume that he learned a lot for potentially something bigger down the road. Uh, but more importantly, the the speed was there from Aspire Motorsports car, and he did a lot with it. One thing, I mean, uh, what I, and I know Blaney got the win in a Ford. Uh, one of the things people are going to be talking about is, is the teamwork aspect of this. One reason is because one of Bubba Wallace's quotes afterward, Bubba Wallace ended up finishing third. He said, there's a reason why Ford's in victory lane, because they always work 
together. Now, that will be dissected on the Toyota side and by the fans and Twitter ad nauseum. But let's focus on the Ford part of it because working together, and as you said, Blaney being the deputy to the Logano sheriff, them all pitting at the same time correctly, if you will, all the Fords together, that seemed to really be advantageous, not only for Penske, not only for Blaney, but for the Fords in general. And I think Bubba's comment kind of reflects that. Yeah, uh, the pit stop, I thought, was a great call. Knowing what we know of Ford, how they put on a master class in the Daytona 500 in regards to pit strategy, you kind of expected that they were going to be first on pit road. And if you noticed, it was getting to the fuel window one by one, every Ford was getting to the bottom lane. And I think maybe Harvick was the last one to get down and then like signal a hand out the window and and they all got on a pit road and and they were able to at least keep a line numbers wise. And I know that, you know, the NBC booth pointed out that the Toyota Chevrolet grouping, that that front pack that was still out on the track that had yet to pit, they were faster collectively than Ford. But I'm having to assume that Ford bet pretty big on the fact that Toyota and Chevrolet would not pit together. And from the sounds of it, both manufacturers individually had a difficult time aligning or deciding on a lap in which to do it. I think Bob Pockris was tweeting like, okay, next time down Chevrolet, and then it didn't happen. So there were things happening in the running order that were causing pause to that strategy. And that fell into Ford's lap uh, when the Rick Ware cars collided and a caution comes out and the majority of the Fords gain track position. And that track position ultimately helped Ryan Blaney won the race. One aspect of all these drafting races will always be blocking. We saw every, uh, the whole gamut, if you will. I mean, Joey Logano, masterful blocking, especially in the lead, uh, probably the best in all of the Cup Series in terms of you know moving from side to side, maintaining the lead, controlling the race, as people will call it. David, we both saw it from our couches when Chris Busher pushed his way to the front, well-earned, good racing, but being in the lead is a different, a whole different scenario for a driver who's never been up there. And we saw Chris Busher kind of almost learning on the job, correct? I mean, trying to learn how to block in front of a field uh, in, in the season finale at the season's most intense point. And it kind of seemed like a fish out of water up there in terms of trying to learn on the job, blocking both lanes and ultimately not successful. What did you see on your television? Yeah, I'm, I'm peeling back the curtain here on the fact that I'm kind of a drafting snob because that the first block that he attempted to, well, I mean, he did he did make the block, but it it was uh, a sharp diagonal, and and the the moment he hit it, I was just saying, nope, nope, not you, not <laughs> not you, not now, nah, no, and it's just a lack of experience because yeah. when you understand, when you talk to these drivers. And they understand that blocking is a necessary evil to keeping leads at Daytona and Talladega. You have to understand that they've worked on it and they know what works. They know what doesn't. And specifically, you know, in talking to William Byron uh, this past February, he had Hendrick build the car specifically so the car would go as soon as his eyes looked at wherever he was pointing the car. And that's that's a reaction that you have to work on. And there's a timing aspect that you have to work on. And oh, by the way, the timing changed tonight. The runs 
weren't necessarily faster or slower, but they were certainly different, right? And I, I have to doubt Busher didn't have any of that in, the, in, the, in his back catalog in his mind of what to do when in the lead because we've seen it so little. I don't think he's had that in his repertoire. He might after tonight. He might have learned quite a bit on what to do and what not to do, but it was a little um, hair on the arms uh, raising uh, <laughs> moments because it was just, ooh, sharp diagonals. Like Kurt Busch, that reaction when Busher pulled down out of line, it was almost as if Bush, who – give him credit. He studies his competition about as well as everybody, was completely not expecting that. So it was it was just a quick reaction. He probably had to get out of the gas to allow Busher in there. It killed all the momentum on that bottom line. But that was kind of what you saw. Like you're you're going to see blocking on drafting tracks. And when Denny Hamlin was on our podcast last year, it, it wasn't necessarily the blocking that was the problem. It was the late blocking that's the problem. And specifically, it's drivers that don't have a ton of experience doing it. And that's where you could potentially get into trouble. It could have ended up worse for Busher and the cars behind him. And uh, fortunately for him, it didn't. But I know that wasn't the case elsewhere in this uh, in this race. I'm glad you brought up Denny Hamlin because I distinctly remember not too long ago on the final lap of the Daytona 500, we saw Denny Hamlin, instead of throw a massive block, he let, and let is a strong word, but he allowed a pass on the final lap of himself, of the 11 car, only to get it back in corners three and four and win the race at the line. And I bring that up, David, because there are choices to be made out there when it comes to blocking. Chase Elliott, you know, a veteran champion of the sport, uh, a good drafting driver. Uh, I just tweeted about his incident because he was in the lead and threw a massive block on Matt Benedetto with three laps to go. And I just questioned if it was worth it then with three laps to go to throw such a massive block. Now, look, I fully, I fully accept that I'm watching is a not driver from the television so far away. These are split second decisions, but still, to throw such an aggressive block with what I felt was still plenty of laps to go at a track where a skilled driver can make it up, I, I wondered if that was worth the risk because it, it really ended his race and it ended a lot of people's races. Uh, what were your immediate thoughts when you saw that? Again, I know it's three laps to go. That was a lot of pushback I got on Twitter. It's like, the people are blocking on lap three. Of course, they're going to block on lap 157 or whatever it is. But I just felt uh, there would still be time, even if the 21 gets by the nine. There would there still would have been time for Chase Elliott. Um, firstly, just because folks were blocking on lap three doesn't make this block better. It doesn't exonerate it from, from being an ill-timed block. Um, it was an aggressive move. I think I agree with you, uh, specifically because we saw the nine car all night drop back and then be able mm. to make their way back up. There were only a few cars that could do that. He could do a lot on his own, so could Logano. And I mean, there there were a few, uh, and he was one of them. Three laps ago, it's it's tough. Y- you know, I, I, I think it just boils down to split second decision. If he had to do it again, he wouldn't. But that speaks to the nature of how aggressive tonight was, even though Elliot is a source of aggression that I would not have expected going into tonight. I know that he wants to win. He did not need a win. So that's curious, but I think I'm in agreement with you. It was just a 
a difficult singular moment, but it also wasn't the only odd block we saw tonight. We saw a few. We saw a lot of different uh, faces out at the front of the field. Uh, Ross Chastain for one, Bubba Wallace for another that we don't typically see leading at Daytona. How that comes to the surface going forward at next year's Daytona 500 or or drafting tracks down the road will be interesting because that's experience that you certainly can't practice and you can hardly replicate it elsewhere. Another driver we should talk about, and it was Austin Dillon because look, he came in uh, essentially well needing within the points. He could have got there on points, David. That's what we're going to talk about. Or he essentially needed the win, and he had a strong car, right? I mean, he was my pick for for, for the overall win, honestly, uh, on NASCAR Fantasy Live because I thought he could do it. He had a fast car tonight, and it's just so odd. He's at Daytona. Think about it. He has been in victory lane. He has been nearly in the crowd. And tonight, if you saw the end of the race, he was <laughs> on the banking and couldn't move at all. So he has been everywhere at Daytona. But David, I saw you tweeting about it and we were talking. The odds point strategy or what you felt was his going after stage points, even though it's what he needed, did you question that at all? Or what was your beef with him and his strategy tonight? I never understood because I know that he went on NBC's Motor Mouths earlier this week and said, we are gunning for every point we can get uh, first stage, second stage win. That's the goal. Well, it, I mean, if, if, if your goal is win, you don't actually need first stage and second stage to go with it. But I, I understand it to an extent that he's going to attack making the playoffs from every possible angle. And I respect that that's what he's going for. But this is Daytona. And of all tracks, Daytona reveals the fragility of a point buffer largely in the blink of an eye, right? It can go south so quickly. And to be as aggressive as he was, and I think he was the first stage's most aggressive driver, to do all of that just to come away with the five stage points that he actually earned you know, I mean, he got it cleanly, but now you have to ask, was any of that actually worth it? Because there's just so much risk associated in doing that that early, uh, doing that for the second stage. You, you have to be in the race to win the race. And if your goal is to make the playoffs, and it is Daytona, I, I know that mathematically points is a possibility. But also what is possible is that anyone, Corey LaJoy, Matt DiBenedetto, Chris Buescher can go out, win this race and nullify whatever you achieve Hmm. from all of your risk in the first and second stage. And knowing what this race is, I think you have to go in assuming that there's going to be some strange names at the front of the field attempting to kick you out of your playoff spot you have to have something in reserve. And what we saw from him very early in this race was counter to that strategy. It, it was almost as if the, those that, that collective strategy that he had were two parts that oppose one another. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it sort of needs to be one over the other. And, and, you, and you hear folks, <laughs> I laughed, but it was Dale Earnhardt Jr. saying that the, the best place to control this race at this track is from the front of the field. Well, 
in fairness, he's Dale Earnhardt Jr. <laughs> and not everyone can emulate his drafting style or his command on a field like he did in his heyday. So that's quite difficult. And if you're Austin Dillon, you're looking at the Penske guys that are pretty relentless. Uh, the Hendrick guys came and went arguably as they pleased, uh, were able to get up and down the field. So you're not alone in attempting to do what you're trying to do. So back out. I mean, Matt Benedetto sort of did that. We saw a number of uh, drivers attempt that that I thought was interesting. Uh, Kyle Larson spent about a stage and a half just out of the the front of the pack. Kurt Busch, the same. Ryan Newman, the same. Eric Jones, uh, Brad Keselowski at times. Um, go to the rear, ride around, chill out, and and then let the race develop. Let the attrition rise and and be there to claim the victory beyond the offensive. And, and there's something very defensive about stage points. And also, it's just incredibly risky. So much risk uh, for so little guarantee. At the beginning of your answer, I was questioning it. The longer you talked, though, the more you convinced me. I will give you that. Because if you're looking at stage points and the risk associated with them, that's what I wasn't factoring in in my head. But the risk, because you'll look at the paper and say, he got a lot of stage points. That's really good. But the risk associated with that, that strategy goes along with beating Tyler Reddick and only Tyler Reddick, right? When really you are, as you mentioned, one Corey LaJoy win it doesn't matter if you have a billion stage points in a race. One Corey LaJoy, Daniel Suarez, Ross Chastain, Bubba Wallace, one of their victories eliminates your billion stage points no matter what happens. So the more you talked about it, David, the more I understood that uh, the risk associated with going for those stage points uh, maybe wasn't worth it. So I understood, you know, as the race went on at what you're saying. So congratulations. Yeah. Dueling views, if you will, A, a narrow view in attacking Tyler Reddick. And then a broad view and beating everybody. He tried to do everything. Yeah. I'm not sure that that's possible. All right. And we saw what happened with it. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, Anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So we covered how the race was won and how it ended. And what it means is that we have a full 16-car playoff, David. And the 16th man is Tyler Reddick. Tyler Reddick, now a playoff driver for the first time in his career, uh, did a lot of defending, right? I mean, it was uh, up and down throughout the night. He had a, you know, the engine issue, the smoking issue, what have you, uh, some, some interesting times during that race, but he is in. It is written, and he is representing RCR. So let, let's look at his season and what he has done 
well because, you know, this was his second year, supposed to be something of a breakout or at least an improvement year. So far, you know, one top five with 12 top tens. Uh, he is a playoff driver. When you look deeper, what are you looking at when you when you want to answer the question, what has Tyler Reddick done well? I think for the season as a whole, I, I think I just wanted to understand what what it is he does, what is his identity. And what comes to mind first is that he's quite fast. Uh, he's actually the faster of RCR's two drivers. So RCR did succeed in getting its fastest driver into the playoffs. But he is defined by his biggest weakness, which is restarts. And that's kind of to say that he is, from a pure split point of view, more productive in races with low caution volume, which there's been a lot of this year, and no restarts towards the end of a race, which has also been the theme for this year. So it, it in theory, aligned with what he does well. Now, that doesn't necessarily spell for playoff success. He's been more productive on 550 than 750. Um, we'll probably go through the, the different rounds and look at the tracks. And I think there's some uh, credibility, certainly at some 750 tracks for him uh, to consider. But it's been probably not – well, I mean, I think there are folks expecting him to win races. So, so it might not have been the breakout season per se – but from a team point of view, and as we talked about last week, if missing the playoffs outright for RCR is considered a failure, they avoided a failure. And this is uh, a season, not only in terms of speed progression, but points progression. Um, it's a season of improvement right there. Even if, it, if, if he falls out of the playoffs in the first round, he has at the very least achieved that. And uh, I shorted him a top 10 finish because I didn't realize, fully realize, David, he finished seventh in Daytona despite having a uh, a shit box, sorry, a crap box of, the, <laughs> of a car at the end. If you look at that car, look at go look at Nate Ryan's tweet. Uh, yeah, he came home and finished a seventh. So uh, uh, so that's 13 top 10 finishes. But David, so he let, let's we'll go through the rounds. I mean. It's not like the traditional, I don't know, your NCAA 16th seed, but l l let's uh, let's judge Tyler Reddick here and see his potential for a, a playoff run because we know the first round uh, will bring us Darlington, Richmond, and Bristol. And two of those tracks they've already been to this season. He finished 20th at Richmond, 12th at Darlington will go uh, next week. And last year in the Bristol night race, David, he finished fourth. Now, if, if he repeated those in the first round of the playoffs, I, I think that could be enough to get him through a top five, a 12th and then a 20th. It'd be very borderline, but it wouldn't be. It's possible uh, with those finishes to move forward and advance to the round of 12. So what, what do you think of his prospects? Two 750 tra or three 750 tracks, actually. Yeah, the, the weaker of the two track types for him. But I think it's entirely possible he gets through the round. Certainly, he doesn't rank 16th out of the, the 16 guys if you're just doing a power poll. Uh, the finish at Darlington really doesn't suit his speed. He had the sixth fastest car there. Um, Bristol is a track. You mentioned the fourth place finish uh, last year in the playoff race. It suits him. It is a high-banked racetrack with a drivable middle groove. Uh, his first truck series win was at Daytona, but his second one was at Dover. And there's something about 
and and that kind of comes into his his midget car dirt racing acumen these small bull ring bank tracks that fits into what he does really well I, I, yes I, I I do like this round because of these tracks for whatever reason Richmond confounds him it confounds Kyle Larson a lot of these uh, ex USAC guys don't have a handle on it just yet but he's staring at two tracks that I think he can say okay here's something that we can build upon and this is speed that's on the record this year remember RCR improved its speed by leaps and bounds in the first round last year with Austin Dillon. It's doubtful because of the parts freeze and all of the restrictions this year for the final year of the Gen 6 car that we're going to see anything like that. So it's good to note that RCR is on the record with Tyler Reddick with good speed on these tracks. I I feel pretty good about, uh, about that, and it also shapes up to be an interesting second round as well. Yeah, the second round gives us a super speedway in Talladega. It gives us a road course in the Roval. And then they also go to a traditional mile and a half at Las Vegas. So uh, how do you uh, handicap that round? Should Tyler Reddick keep on going? Is it? It's weird, but the, the Roval is a plus for him now, right? We we came into this yeah, season. Okay. He was... Coda, I remember, yeah. Yeah, he was the second least efficient passer last season on uh, on road courses and my how things have changed and that's a credit to him working with josh wise and scott speed to bone up his his road course racing acumen he's won stages this year so that track i mean that's that's going to be a volatile track for everyone but based on what we've seen from him this year i'd I'd feel a lot better about him than maybe three-fourths of the current playoff field as we speak uh, oddly, the weird one of that round is Las Vegas because the speed was just totally amiss. 21st fastest on that mile and a half track. I might be willing to say that's a potential aberration because he had the 10th fastest car at Kansas and that's mm, similar track type, probably the same tire compound. I, I think the, the correct speed answer is closer to a Kansas than it is Vegas. So if he's able to do that, he's able to get through Talladega unscathed, then we're talking about, you know, sleeper run, Cinderella kind of stuff. And that's interesting. And again, this RCR team, we talked about it on last week's episode. They've gotten faster. Uh, They moved from 18th and 19th to 14th and 15th in speed. They have been able to make progress. These are good race cars that they're putting on the track. Reddick might be the best vessel for them to test the limitations of what they're able to do. And so much of this year, Reddick's problems have been self-inflicted. And and he's the one, I mean, he spoke up after Nashville saying that, hey, it was driver error. And he's had plenty of driver errors this year. If he can go, maybe not error-free, but maybe one less error <laughs> per race, then then you're going to see a different result on top of some speed that's quantifiably competitive. Yeah, right now, Tyler Reddick ranks 14th uh, in terms of median speed at the 550 track. So again, borderline. If he maximizes what he should be able to do at the Roval, uh, you know, maybe that makes up for a potential weakness at something like Las Vegas. And then, you know, Talladega is what it is. Again, we just saw him finish seventh with a real... Uh, 
crap box of a car. So again, if you're making a Cinderella run, the, the number, it's not that crazy of an idea if we dig a little deeper and some things go his way. So let's move on to round three, the round of eight. Uh, that gives us tracks uh, like Martinsville. That gives us tracks like Texas. And uh, give me the third one, David. Kansas. Kansas, of course. Of yes. course, Kansas, Martinsville. We're doing this on the fly here. Come on. Uh, but look, the, the final eight, how does that shape up? Again, a 750 track, a traditional 550 oval of a track, and then Texas, where we've just been for the all-star race, so kind of throws in a wild card there. What do you think? Yeah, earlier this year, 10th fastest car at Kansas, 11th fastest car at Martinsville. And that's fine. And, and, that's, and, and that's really good for, considering Martinsville is a track – atypical compared to what he saw in his formative years uh, driving dirt cars. That's fine for regular season, but that round is so damn difficult. If you have the seventh fastest car, that's a problem. You're at a significant disadvantage. So it's going to be, it's going to boil down to finishes and the guys that are likely in that round of eight on those tracks Ah, so so efficient passing, so efficient restarting, and and we've we've talked about restarting as a weakness. Speed at that point will probably be a weakness. That's likely the exit round, uh, best case scenario, and, and and that's not that's not a knock on where he is. That's sort of just a testament to the depth of talent at the top of the NASCAR cup series right now is that is around where you're going to see the cream of the crop. And the flip side of that is if you're just a little bit off, it's going to show. And we've seen that, like we we saw Kevin Harvick go down last year. It's, I mean, it's not much. It, It really doesn't take much for you to just get blown out of the water in that round compared to guys like a Chase Elliott at any Hamlin, uh, Kyle Bush this year, I think is going to be a force through the playoffs and especially in that round and only four can make it to Phoenix. And that, that is just a tough ask right now. But if he does get that far, then goodness, that's a commendable season for that RCR number eight team. And one thing just to Give this another perspective for those listening out here, because because in any sport, like if we're talking about the the final quote unquote final seed in the playoffs, all of a sudden making this this magical run. I know he was technically the last person in the playoff, but again, perspective, David. He obviously scored a lot more points this season than Eric Almirola, than Michael McDowell. He has scored more points than Christopher Bell. He scored more points than Kurt Busch and Alex Bowman. So when you look at it, I mean, actually in terms of points scored, he's 11th. He's not 16th. So to to consider him like the last seed, I, I know, you know, it is technically in some odd NASCAR way, but he is better than some of these other cars, is what I guess is what I'm trying to say. So if he does make a run into the final eight, maybe we shouldn't be as surprised as seeing a 16 next to his name. You know what I'm saying? No, not at all. I mean, and that's sort of been the backbone of Richard Childress Racing for the last few years was their ability to pad points. Uh, they weren't gunning for race wins on road courses. They were padding points. Uh, Tyler Reddick did that almost as good as everybody in the series this year. So that's that's a knack they were able to achieve. Maybe that continues here. Maybe they call races in the playoffs similar to how they called them in the regular season, but 
whereas in doing that, he was simply trying to get into the playoffs. Well, the 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 number of spots dwindles the longer he goes in the playoffs, and eventually there's going to have to be legitimate results. And up until a few weeks ago, Austin Dillon was the better of the two RCR drivers in terms of average finish. And that was the big disconnect for Tyler Reddick. So some things are going to have to change uh, for him to continue on. Uh, but what they've done well should help at least keep them afloat uh, until they figure out uh, how to correct what ails them. Tyler Reddick will start the playoffs with more points than Kevin Harvick, believe it or not. We'll see what he does in Darlington. David, that was fun. A special bonus episode of Positive Regression. Again, appropriate for the end of the regular season uh, down in Daytona. Now we have uh, a lot to look forward to uh, with with the 10 final races of the season to crown a champion in a playoff field. And uh, look forward to the next preview of the next episode coming up next week. Yeah, we'll go a little bit more in depth with what to expect. Surely across the first round, I'll also cover that in next week's uh, pre-race article for NBC Sports. And uh, if you're familiar with motorsportsanalytics.net, keep your eyes peeled for something special, something new coming this week that I think a lot of folks are going to get excited about. Uh, Something cool. I'm happy to finally be posting it. So um, check all of that out. But uh, yeah, we're going to have a lot in store come playoff time. And uh, I'm excited. It's going to be a good 10 race slate, uh, hopefully of entertaining races. All right. And don't forget, Positive Regression is available wherever podcasts are found on all major podcasting platforms. Thank you for listening. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cabana. We'll see you on Thursday. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.